this conception of, of what the global south is and in a republic people who are not able to have these complexities as people in the global north are but not only that they don't see us as makers of history they see us as a product of history and for me this is an example it illustrates the way that these forms of imperialism are are taking place Welcome to Dream Radically Podcast, brought to you by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Dreaming radically is a necessity if we are to reach a world of liberation for all marginalized peoples. Imagining the world we want to see and then fighting like hell to go and get it. Dream radically is a hope, a strategy, a goal of altering the status quo in our quest for social transformation. Join us on this journey. Let's dream. Hello everyone, my name is Yusuf Kamel and I am the Foundation for Liberating Minds Global Vision Director. I will be your host today for this episode of Dream Radically. I am joined by Eduardo Campbell today to talk a bit and maybe rant about how it is coming from post-colonial nations, what it means to be us living where we are now, and how that has been central to our lives, from day-to-day interactions to more academic conversations. Welcome to Dream Radically Podcast. We have with us here Eduardo Campbell, who is going to introduce himself very briefly right now as we're going to be talking about post-colonialism today. Uh, Hello, thanks for having me. Uh, My name is Eduardo Campbell. I'm from Panama and I'm really happy to be here. I do a lot of work related to LGBTQ activism as well as the intersectionality of race gender and and other layers of identities uh, when it comes to my activism and uh, I'm currently studying a master's in public policy. Thank you so much for being here. To start things off, I want to ask you, how would you describe your home? How would you describe Panama? So I guess for me it is important to separate the two, home and Panama. Panama is my home country and I'm not sure if I would define it as my home, at least right now. I left Panama when I was 16, so seven years ago, almost eight years ago. But for me, the definition of home, it equalizes to freedom. And I'm not sure if there is such a place like that yet, that I feel free. But I think there are places where, where that comes closer to. To me, home is if, if that place where you feel liberated and where you're able to be who you are without fear of persecution or retaliation. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's a very important distinction. And I'm glad I'm glad you made that point. This is more of a personal thing and less to do with our topic, but I have a question for you. <laughs> do you think there will be a place like that, the one that you're describing? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I try to stay positive, but I'm not sure if there would ever be a place where such freedom comes. However, I think there might be exceptions where, where that come close to. And that doesn't necessarily need to be a region. Uh, I think it comes up. With, with a lot of different factors, environment, socioeconomic dynamics, political dynamics. It's more about a region or a place as such, but I think it's more about the su- surrounding and the system surrounding that area where I might or might not feel free. That makes sense. So how would you describe Panama though? I think that is a very difficult question for me to respond. Um, and I guess I'm gonna divide it in, in layers. Panama was the only place I saw for most of my life. But Panama has a very interesting history and is a very interesting exception in what Latin America is. 
Uh, and I think that had to do a lot with the influence of the United States, um, which was present in the country until 1999. Panama, to me, has not been an independent sovereign land, but instead it has been a, a country that radiates imperialism to every single aspect of it. Our currency, our infrastructure, our economic system, our political systems, and also the erasure of history also applies to that. Panama is a country that is super rich in terms of its people, the backgrounds of the people, and yet we believe in this false idea that the country is, is a melting pot of, of different societies, but it is not. Uh, it, is, it is a segregated place that discriminate against many of these communities. And until today, I think Panamanians are trying to understand the identity of what to be a Panamanian is and how to separate that from not having an education system that focuses on telling us history or discovering history that is not whitewashed. And I think once that's done, maybe we're able to find other layers of who we are as Panamanians. So you bring up an interesting question. What is being Panamanian to you? This goes again to, to what I told you. I think this is the point where I feel like many of us are still struggling to, to realize. I'm, I'm somebody who does not believe in these nationalistic identities, but I think the identity that I, that I usually see as, as Panamanian is, is an identity of survival and survival of you know, colonial era and what happened after the independence of, of, of us and Spain and what happens after we separated from Colombia and how we, we are who we are right now. I think for me, the identity of Panama is an identity that we don't know because we don't know our history. And, and to me, it's not necessarily about how we look like, but rather about what we passed through and how we got here. And I think for me, this is where at least I would see that as an epiphany or as a close moment to understanding Panamanian identity is understanding our past written by us, not by others who might want to tell us a story from an outside perspective, but rather understanding who are the people or who were the people who struggled or who fought to be where we are. I find it very interesting that a lot of what you said kind of resonated with me in the sense that you know, what it means for me being an Egyptian or, or coming from a post-colonial nation in general. There is something about slowly discovering some of the lost history that your country or your identity group within that country or whatever it is has had for a very long time and has been kind of buried for a very, very long time or, or been told through the eyes of somebody who doesn't really own the story, but is somebody who, who won a contest of sorts, right? I find that very intriguing. So you already touched a little bit on it. I know that Panama has had a very long history of colonialism since the 1500s and culminates with the Panama Canal and U.S. involvement in the country. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about it? So Panama got independent from Spain in 1821. After that, we got together with Great Colombia and we were part of, of this one country called Great Colombia. And Great Colombia was the one giving the responsibility to the French when the canal was constructed in the 1800s. However, as some of you might know, uh, they failed. 
So what happened was that the U.S. was interested in building the canal. And the government of Colombia was not really happy with some of the, the agreements at the time in order for the construction of the canal by the Americans. So what happened was that the U.S. kind of supported independent movements in the country and then getting some sort of path to construct the Panama Canal because yet, because at that time, then we would have not have any link with the Colombian government. So Panama got independent from Colombia in 1903. And I put this on quote unquote, because many people think that is the beginning of the Republic, but to me, it's the beginning of being a kind of protectorate of the United States and, and, and a completely erasure of culture, social, economic and political development that happened in the country before. So after 1903, basically the, the US Americans came to the country to construct the canal, but they owned part of the land that was around the canal. So we call it the, the canal zone. And this area was US territory. So one of the things that I, I think people do not realize is that this area was inhabited by US Americans. It had US government structures. U.S. leaders governing the area, but also I think one of the most striking pieces of dynamics at the time was that they implemented many of the racial hierarchies that existed in the U.S. So they implemented Jim Crow laws in that area, and they implemented a division in the payroll. It's called silver and gold payroll, which was divided by race pretty much. And we kind of adopted all of these dynamics that did not really exist before, but in a way they got part of the country because of the influence of the United States. In 1903, when we got independent from Colombia, we also adopted the dollar and many other aspects of our lives that kind of mixed together uh, US American culture, socioeconomic and political systems with what we had at, at, at the time. I wasn't at all aware of the last few sentences that you said. I didn't know that even Jim Crow laws were implemented outside of U.S. territory. Panama is not alone within the realm of Latin America that has experienced a very heavy-handed form of U.S. imperialism, of course. In many ways, there has been Costa Rica, there has been Puerto Rico, there have been multiple other places that have also suffered from a very heavy U.S. involvement in the region. Why do you think the U.S. is that invested in Latin American affairs? Well, I think there is a, there is a clear reasoning in, in, into this. In order to become a global power, which was always one of the aims of the, of the U.S., uh, they needed to conquer. And the ideas of conquering was not to follow the European model of colonies, but what was to adapt a socioeconomic system that would try to practice U.S. imperialism. I think the, the relationship of the eager of, of the U.S. to be related to Latin American affairs, first of all, is, is by the fact that we are a very close region, but second of all, because you could extract and you could, you know, have access to all of these goods, but not only that, also you know, use land and own land and profit out of it. And I think you could, you could tie back about how most of our relationships with the U.S. have been purely economic in the interest of the U.S. 
uh, and, and I think that that would make sense. And, and, and I would even argue, you know, there is also a political aspect into this. Um, you know, the US was very clear uh, at some point, I forgot what was the, the treaty. I think it was the Good Neighbor Treaty. I, I forgot which, which was the treaty about not having European influence in the Americas, uh, in the entire continent. And, uh, and I think this was a clear step in order to play that role that Europe played before in Latin America be a new country to benefit from what Latin America has to offer. So and I think that that really is one of the reasons why, but I, I would also argue that I think in the 20th century, uh, Latin America was a vibrant region that saw paths to escape from US imperialism by funding new political ideologies. And I think the Cold War also played a significant role in why the U.S. even got more interested because I think they saw a shift of critical movements that tried to find some sort of independence from U.S. imperialism. And I think that also reinforced that interest from the U.S. to be, to be part, you know, the whole fight against communism. And I think that also created a, a bigger reason why the U.S. wanted to be so involved. It's quite interesting that you say that how you describe the forms of U.S. imperialism doesn't match up at all with what the U.S. has always been calling itself as a never as a colonialist power, the one that has extractive colonies or basically just takes resources in the same way that, you know, the older empires. And since this is a podcast, I'm using air quotes. <laughs> It's an extractive empire in many ways. And the U.S. never really called itself that. And it, it always says that, you know, whatever form it is doing, it is not imperialist in that sense, at least, which obviously is contrary to so many things. And um, what you were saying about the, the Good Neighbor Treaty, I think, is very similar to the Eisenhower Doctrine of 1947, I think, which was pretty much the same thing, but regarding Middle Eastern countries in the sense that, you know, again, in the midst of the Cold War and avoiding any form of Soviet influence on the Middle East. But then by doing so, you know, the U.S. itself became a lot more imperialist than it was by, by enacting a lot of policies that kind of touched all of us. Before I go on, I noticed that you mentioned this before, and I, I want to um, bring it to attention. You always, when you're talking about people from the U.S., you're mentioning U.S. American. Would you like to clarify a little bit about that? Yes. Um, I mean, before before I say this, I think I would take myself back from the point of the good neighbor policy because I'm not really sure what is the name of the policy that the U.S. kind of implemented. Um, but it was a policy in the early 20th century to prevent the influence of Europe in, in the Americas. Uh, but... Yes, uh, I would say that I think for, for Latin Americans, it's a very difficult and, and troubling term to use whenever we refer to people from the United States, because in Spanish, we have a word to, to call people from the U.S., and it's estadounidense, which means United States citizen or something like that. I don't, I don't really know how, how that translates. And for us, in our education system, we learned that America is a continent, including North and South. And I think this is part of, of the troubling aspect of calling somebody American as a Latino, because for us, the Americas covers everything, you know, uh, 
from Alaska to Argentina. And it's something that I also try to prevent me from saying, because I think once you are so exposed to, to American society, or even now that I'm living in Europe, people often refer to them as Americans. And, and, and I try to always use you as American in order to make that distinction of, yes, I'm from Panama and I'm also an American in the way that my education system you know, taught me. And I think for me, it is important to try to deconstruct the way that many people in the global north usually think. Uh, because I think the way that academia works in the global north tends to have this uh, sense of superiority that doesn't allow room for critical or constructive feedback from people who are like us coming from the global south with a non-white heteronormative background. And, and, and for me, it is always important just to kind of bring that question into place, like, okay, why do you say you as American? Well, America for us is one continent. And, and I know that even in Europe, I think some countries learn that there are two continents, uh, North America and South America. Um, I did a quick Google search. Apparently it's the Monroe Doctrine. I think that's the one, yeah. Um, yes, yes. So these forms of imperialism, and I'm glad you mentioned the Global South, seem to have consistently made its way to, to whatever, whatever you wanna call it. If it's the Global South or underdeveloped nation or the more classic third world countries, or whatever new name that we're being called in general. Is it still going? Is it over? Does it live on? What do you think? I mean, I don't think so many centuries of colonialism or so many centuries of colonialism just get rid of it in an independent movement in the, in the 20th century for many countries. Um, you know, I think one of the biggest examples of this is what happened in the US capital. And for me, this is a way of how imperialism gets its way because language and, and the way that we write history and the way that academia works, I'm extremely critical of Global North academia because I think they are responsible of many of the post-colonial and even colonial projects, if, if I want to be nice by calling it projects. Um, but some of the, the things that happen in history and what I mean by this I feel like in my experience in the U.S. and now living in Europe, I've noticed that many scholars think themselves as these ultimate sources of knowledge that have been studying who we are, but not listening to who we are. We are kind of like, like these guinea pigs in a laboratory that we get to be studied and not really seen as somebody equal or in the same level. And I think one of the most shocking things for me was seeing the phrases banana republic and related to, to what happened in the U.S. Capitol. And why I think this is a form of, of imperialism is because it creates a rhetoric of who we are. It creates and it completely erases the complexities of which societies we live in and what kind of people live in the societies that we are. I think one of the most shocking experiences that I had in my current master's program was a discussion that we had on if the EU model can be copied in other regions of the world. And many of my classmates were responding that it will not work because in order to implement such a system, uh, countries need to have a value of democracy. And democracy is a value of European identity. And for me, this is extremely shocking because it, it is a simplicity of life that allows them to keep these imperialistic dynamics and dehumanizing ideas of who we are. 
And why I say this? So for instance, I'm reading this amazing book called Erased by Dr. Marisa Lasso. And the book talks about what happened in the Panama Canal area before the Panama Canal was constructed. And in the 1800s, this area was a black republic. So for many people, this is not something that they can easily imagine because at the time, many scholars didn't see black people as people capable of having a complex society. I mean, we could also argue about how the global north saw the independence of Haiti and so on and so forth. But one of the most shocking things for me was the fact that I never knew that before the Panama Canal construction, there was these complexities of social, political, and economic dynamics and development in Panama City, where the Panama Canal was constructed. And what happened after, after the U.S. came was that all of these places were removed. Many of them disappeared. And now next to the Panama Canal, you see this bunch of trees that looks like the U.S. came and kind of, quote unquote, civilized who we are, because it didn't seem like there was anything there. It seems like this precious, magnificent, you know, architecture project in the middle of the jungle. But what that happened is that it erased the identity and the complexity of Panamanian history and development for centuries. You know, it was the most populated area of Panama at the time where there were black mayors, there were black citizens voting. And that was in the 1800s, at the time that many European countries had monarchy still. And this is what I was telling my friends and my classmates, is like this conception of, of what the global South is, and in a republic, people who are not able to have these complexities as people in the global North are. But not only that, they don't see us as makers of history. They see us as a product of history. And for me, this is an example, and, and it exemplifies, it illustrates the way that these forms of imperialism are, are taking place. And, and for me, I listened to these interviews from very pronounced scholars in Harvard, Kiel uh, Laporte, I think is her name, and she was talking about how in order to understand this chapter of U.S. history, we cannot look back at U.S. history, we need to look at somewhere else in the global south. And I think these kind of references and these kind of ideas of always putting themselves up, like this is not something that represents us because we're not a banana republic. We're not a developing country. It's always, for me, that type of language that allows imperialism to take place because it creates a hierarchy in the mindset of the people, but also in the people in government, to how they see us and how they see our development. I think you really hit the nail on the head with the products. We are products and not makers of history. There are so many parallels to something like that that I've personally experienced or I've seen throughout history with how things have been told, really, with you know how Orientalism, for example, presented itself in Middle East and North Africa or in South Asia with, with how people basically came in, usually the British or the French came in and tried to mold us to their liking. And in doing so, didn't both didn't understand what the people who already had been living there were capable of. And also by doing so completely erased and removed a large portion of our morals or, uh, or things that they would not reach until years later. One of my favorite examples is Egypt, for example, prior to the British occupation, was very much 
I'm not going to say that it was, you know, I, I don't like really using the word progressive when it comes to this, but it was a lot more accepting of LGBTQ populations than most of Europe, I would say, at that time. We had very strong and very proud LGBTQ traditions within the country. And when the British came with their Victorian prudishness and all of those little ways of how people should act, they actually outlawed a large portion of what is preached today in most of the Western world as just acceptance. And then we're back at it again. And now we're the ones who are uncivilized and we're the ones who kind of lost it. It's the same story in India with the recent law that was repealed, I think, in 2018. It's the same story in Nigeria, I believe. It's the same story in a lot of places that have had this kind of thing. And then people turned around, people in my classes, <laughs> who say that there needs to be some form of education that needs to come to third world countries, or however way that was phrased, to ensure that the rising generations can actually uphold democracy and not let it go into backsliding. And it's it's such a ridiculous thing to hear. It's such a ridiculous thing to even talk about because it's so out there. Not many people understand the power of, of this reference in history and in the way that, that people see themselves. I don't think people understand how the, the institution of, of colonialism or race has such a powerful effect in the way that even we, you know, people from the global South see ourselves. And I think this plays a very powerful role in how we go about our lives. And this is where, for me, this idea that we often hear from, from the global north about you guys are not makers of history, you're a product of history, that creates that superiority, even in the way that we see ourselves. And it creates these hierarchies that we adopt and we think that they are right. And, and for instance, we see that often in Panama, you know, this idea that the government is usually not representative of the demographics of the population. And the fact that I've never seen people with their black natural hair in these important positions of government, how I was not allowed, or people are not allowed to have their natural hair to go to school or to go to work, and, and how these things are seen as non-professional aspect of your life. And I think people might see this as innocuous, as something that is like so small, but it has a big impact. I mean, to me, when I was listening to all of this news last week about the U.S., it was always like, we're making history. We're making history. We are part of history. This is history, and everything is history. Is this like, <laughs> is, is this already assumption that they are these biggest, biggest makers of history all the time? And I tell my friends, like, these were the people whose books were published about history. They were the quote-unquote winning side of history. But you don't really get to, to, to tell the stories of this these people that didn't win in the so-called history. And, and I think this is where, where my, my struggle goes with academia, because I think the way that we learn history is always about winners and losers, but it doesn't really talk about the complexity of what happens. And this story about what you told me about LGBTQ is something that happened in Panama too. You know, we have an indigenous community in Panama, close to the Caribbean side, in the Caribbean side of the country, called uh, Gunayala. And they are transgender people leading that community. I mean, if you go a few kilometers away from that area, you go to Panama City, and you see a pretty transphobic society that has been exposed to the so-called global north values of Christianity and all of these ideas that we adopted from Europe. And 
we adopted all of these rules. I mean, homosexuality was decriminalized in the country, I think in 2008 or 2007. And also you see all of these chapters of colonial era where Spanish colonizers brought all of these indigenous queer people into cages to be eaten by dogs. I mean, this is something that you can actually see in the history books because they didn't see these people as, as normal, as morally correct. And, and I think once you tell these complex stories, people are able to, to understand that we're not this society that is just the product of what happened in the north. But we, we're societies who are complex by our own history. The way that what our communities, you know, were before you have the Inca civilization, you know, you have all of these groups of, of people who were already having an organized and a complex system of living. And, and I think imperialism had this big impact in the way that we see ourselves, because I think many people at home would not see them as, as, as makers of history. And, and it would sound a bit ridiculous to even talk about it in the way that I'm currently talking, just because it's not part of, of, of how we learn about ourselves. You know, this is exactly right. There is actually um, an Egyptian author whose name is Galal Amin, who started talking about a form of inferiority complex that we as people who have suffered from colonialism for so long and are looking so much towards the quote-unquote West or the global North or whatever that is. And that has affected us in many ways, right? Like it's how we see ourselves is definitely changed because we don't see ourselves as we are the best of who we can be, but we see others as they're the ones who have the power. They're the ones who have the money. They're the ones who, no matter what they do, they're going to be the ones who are telling us <laughs> what to do, more or less, whether it's, you know, whoever is in the White House is, they're going to be the ones controlling our politics or controlling our <laughs> future in general. And so why look towards our own, you know, because obviously whatever they're doing, they're doing better. And that's very harmful way of thinking has propagated so much into everything, everyday interactions, stuff that we just don't even notice anymore and we do automatically. You know, somebody prefers all forms of European art over any form of indigenous art. That's part of the same thing, right? It kind of goes with the same mentality. A while ago in the Foundation for Liberating Minds, we had a series about global citizenship and how easily people mistake being avid travelers for being global citizens, which is a term we try to reclaim from the rich and privileged folks who often contribute to neocolonialism by just going and exotifying wherever they go to. If somebody felt like they wanted to be an actual global citizen, a responsible citizen who wanted to, who heard this and feels like they should do something about it. Is there anything to be done? Should they do anything? Yes, I mean, there is a lot to be done. Uh, and I think there are the people with the most power to, to do stuff because they're gonna be listened by people who we usually do not reach uh, spaces. And I think one of the first things to do is to read the history written by the members of those communities that they're gonna be at. I, I, cannot, I cannot emphasize enough the struggle that I find in always reading whitewashed history and how it, it completely dehumanizes who we are. And I think it is important for people who want to be so-called global citizens to read about these global citizens, to read about who we are, but not read what their high school professors teach them. Um, because I, I realized in, in this 
seven years of exposure that I have in, in Global North education system, the biases that exist among my, my own professors who call themselves, you know, critically academic scholars. And, and I think this is a bit scary for me because these people have a lot of power to, to define who we are and publish these big papers in these huge journals. But I think once you, you get to know those little pieces of history, once you listen to the local community, once you're able to critically see yourself by reading and listening to these people, I think that could at least open a room for some sort of reaching and understanding as people in the same level, not as, as, as a hierarchy that has existed for so many centuries. Eduardo, thank you so much for being an amazing guest today. Last question. <laughs> Is there anything you would like to plug or tell us about that you're working on? Yes. So as, as I mentioned, I'm currently studying in a public policy school in Berlin. And I'm really honored to be part of this new organization called SHIELD, which we looked at the way that policy can ameliorate issues of diversities and the way that even our own school can improve issues of diversity by you know, faculty curriculum and so on. So I would really advise you to follow our page on Instagram. It's uh, shield.herty. And you can get uh, some of our current projects. We have done a lot of projects related to course edit, looking at the syllabus that we have and look at the readings and do an, an audit about what is the gender and race of the authors and then how and where are they coming from and how can we implement a curriculum that can be more, more diverse in order to implement more critical thinking uh, that is not so Eurocentric in the way that we study. So I would advise you to, to look at our projects. Uh, we are currently working on a, a diversity metrics for universities. So I hope you can, you can follow and then see some of the, the things that we're working on. But thank you so much for having me. As another guest put it, amazing conversation, unfortunate topic. Thank you so much. And you can catch us on our website, foundationforliberatingminds.com. Thank you for listening to Dream Radically Podcast, brought to you by the Foundation for Liberating Minds. Learn more about the work of Foundation for Liberating Minds at our website, foundationforliberatingminds.org, our social media pages at Foundation4LM, and consider getting connected with the podcast and all our members by supporting this work through our Patreon, patreon.com slash foundation4LM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate the pod wherever you're listening. Power. And may tomorrow bring us closer to our radical dreams.